Talk. Hello and welcome back to BNSSG PedsPod. I'm Ruth Bowen. I'm a Bristol GP working for the BNSSG Training Hub, bringing child and young person education to primary care clinicians. Today I'm joined by Anthony Crabb. Anthony, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, good morning. My name is Anthony Crabb. I'm a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist in North Devon. Originally trained in Auckland and New Zealand and have moved over to the UK and done my training in the UK and worked in North Devon for many years and recently moved into the independent sector. Fantastic. Tell us a bit more about your work then at the moment. We see lots of young people who are struggling in schools for a range of reasons. Anxiety, low mood, through to neurodiversity issues, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, specific learning difficulty. Offer them assessments, input, help them get back in school, access to local resource in Devon, but also nationally remotely as well. Brilliant. And school non-attendance is obviously quite a hot topic in the news at the moment. Have you got any comments on that at all? Any insight from your perspective? So what a week to do it. So on Sunday, the headlines of the Sunday Times on the front page was about a report from the Centre for Social Justice about attitudes of parents towards schooling and how the attitudes have shifted since the pandemic about how important school days are. Mostly parents still agree it's really important for pupils to attend schools every day. However, there is a notable proportion of families that see it as less of a driving factor. And there's growing concern about the number of young people who are out of school, nearly a million of them through the country at the moment, for persistent absence. And nearly 150,000 of them with severe absence. And so it's a real growing concern nationally. It's a growing concern for both Conservative government and the Labour shadow government. There seems to be a real focus on how to get these young people back. Unfortunately, the focus seems more on parents and young people rather than what we might be able to do to make schools more attractive for these young people and enable them to get back in. And is that representative of what you see in your world in CAMS, or do these figures surprise you? These figures don't surprise me at all. What has surprised me is the story around it, because the stories Mm. we hear in CAMS are very much about children being very distressed about going into school. These children are motivated to get into school, their parents are motivated to get them into school. However, it is a genuinely traumatising experience for them. The way that the school is set up, about how the rules are implemented and enforced, the social interactions. And so there is genuine distress exhibited Mm. by the young people. Very high rates of autism spectrum disorder, ADHD and learning disabilities among the children at the most distressed. In fact, a study that was published last year by a group in Newcastle, when they looked at the young people that weren't attending, this was a sample of about a thousand young people, 90% of those children had neurodevelopmental conditions. 84, 85% of them had autism spectrum disorder or were awaiting a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So I think it may be less about parents' attitudes about schooling, but about the genuine distress that's being caused by getting kids into school. So if we come on then to think about how we can support them from primary care, we've got three cases to chat through to explore some typical causes for school non-attendance, how we can assess them in primary care, when we should be referring them to you at CAMS, and hoping just to pick your brain a little bit on resources to signpost children, young people and their families to. Great. Good. So our first case, Mum presents with seven-year-old Oscar, who she feels has ADHD. He's been referred to CAMS, but has been told that there's an 18-month wait. He attends his local primary school, but is disruptive in class and falling behind with his reading and writing. 
Mum is feeling at her wit's end as she battles with him every morning before school, describes practically dragging him in, and meltdowns when she leaves. Mum doesn't feel this is healthy or manageable, and is coming to her GP to look for advice. What are your initial thoughts with this case? Initial thoughts with this case is this is a very typical scenario. This is this thing about school distress. There is something that is not going well, and that is being manifest as what we see as either difficult or challenging, disruptive behaviour, for which there are many causes. ADHD has had a lot of publicity recently, both in terms of how it presents, but also some of the problematic areas around diagnosis and treatment, particularly in the independent sector. But also in the NHS with these very long wait. And 18 months for a seven-year-old is a lifetime, more than obviously a school year that they may potentially be missing out on. My immediate thoughts are, yes, we should be thinking, is this attention concentration problems? But not to immediately go down that route. What other things might be going on? What is the family context? What is the school context? What's happened before? Has mum or anyone in the family been into school to try and better understand what's going on for this boy? Is there a, a senko or a pastoral lead for this young person? And what's their sense of what is going on? And in many cases, that's been bypassed because it has become harder to contact the right people at schools. And so sometimes families will come straight to their GP when really their first port of call should be at the school. Don't assume that families have been to school and asked about what's going on. They may not have been. And relationships between parents, families and schools break down quite quickly over this. Mm. So sometimes there's a perceived lack of action by school, it's school's fault that there's disruption, and sometimes just helping families step back from that and work better with schools means that schools can implement things straight away that can be really helpful for young people, whether or not they have a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, autism, learning disabilities. And a young person who's been reported as falling behind in his reading and writing at such a young age, I might be thinking about other things that are going on as well, specific learning difficulties. I'd be pushing for an educational psychology assessment of this boy and also better understanding how far behind this boy is. At such a young age, and he's, what, year two, possibly year three in school, for that already to be noted, remember, parents sometimes are the last people to know that their children are behind reading and writing. So for them to notice that there are other things going on. So if someone is presenting at a young age, five, six, seven, and people have already noticed that they're delayed in their academic work it is worth exploring are they delayed in any other areas so specifically has there been a language delay have they had an assessment for that has there been any motor delay and if there's a sense that the young person also has other areas where they are delayed that's when I think immediately the referral should go to pediatrics first so there are lots of different causes of course for global delay certainly early ischemic injury HIE birth trauma can present quite late, actually. It should be picked up at the time. It is not always. And so it's worth unpicking, are there things that have gone undiagnosed up until this point? I'd want to know more about the family mm-hmm. and what sort of support the family have. Is it just mum by herself? What other supports are there for her? And are there other siblings in the family? What else is going on? Is there an older brother or an older sister with similar difficulties? Because that might give you a stare. I would also be thinking about, are there areas of risk? Because if this is a family at close to collapse because mum is struggling and she says she's at her wit's end. Do these battles get physical? Is there other support that needs to be mobilised to help this family cope? And perhaps pushing for an earlier assessment for difficulties. So just breaking it down for us, if we assume that mum hasn't explored other areas of support, what would you be advising mum at this point? School, so speaking to the pastoral lead or the SEND team, 
asking if their child is on an individual education plan, and if not, are there things that can be put in place? If the young person um, looks as though they're overly active, impulsive, then offering them space, time out. Sensory breaks, both for young people that have autism spectrum disorder and ADHD, can be enormously helpful. The classroom setting can be quite a busy, overwhelming one for them, so just giving them five minutes to go out, have a breather, perhaps walk around a bit, may be the difference in terms of helping this young person manage the environment, even without getting a specific diagnosis. And I know that even a lot of mainstream schools around here have that sensory break area where there's a quiet space that any children can go to if they need a little bit of time out. Definitely worth exploring whether mum is aware of those. Where would you signpost mum for support outside of school? There's a range of both local and national resources. The bristol.gov.uk site has some wonderful resources about special educational needs and the Disability Information Service, the Sendias service. They also have a lot of resources on the website around parenting courses, parenting support groups locally. And then there are the national sites, the National Autistic Society, the Autism Education Trust, Ambitious for Autism, if that's the route that we think we're going down, ADHD UK, ADHD Foundation. Sometimes it's quite hard to filter Google search resources. When I would be advising this family, I'd say there are plenty of organisations out there, but just check out what their background is, who their therapists or workers are, whether they're regulated by a regulatory body. A lot of third sector is unregulated. A lot of the independent medical sector is unregulated. In fact, the vast majority are not. Thank you. But my understanding with a lot of the resources out there is that you don't actually need that diagnosis. So it no. can be needs-based yeah. in assessing the behaviours that they've got and addressing them individually. Would you agree with that? That's exactly right. And it is a bit of a source of frustration sometimes that we have to go down the diagnosis route to get the support should be needs-led. Because diagnosis, autism, ADHD, learning disability, doesn't really provide you with any information about functionally what is required to help that young person do well in school. So we would much prefer a needs-led type support rather than diagnosis-led support. Mm, that's a really interesting point to bring up. And I do wonder from your experience how you find schools with those people that don't have a diagnosis yet. I often feel that parents are very frustrated that they feel stuck because they're waiting for a diagnosis, there's a long waiting list for CAMS, and that they say that school won't support them without that diagnosis. We hear that story quite a lot as well. The ways to shift that conversation sometimes are around helping schools see the domains that can be helpful. So if the school is saying your child has badly behaved, asking the schools to describe the behaviour and then reflect back to them what they're seeing. Gosh, so you're seeing impulsivity, overactivity. Would the things that work for ADHD work for my child? Mm. And that helps schools reframe what they're seeing and think, oh gosh, well actually maybe we could try that. So rather than challenging them about diagnosis or non-diagnosis, helping them explore the actual behaviours and how implementing strategies that help those with diagnosis may be helpful for their own young person. So really just reframing towards the need yeah. rather than the diagnosis. That's really mm. helpful. Thank you. Moving on to our second case. 16-year-old Jemima is brought to her GP by her parents seeking advice. Jemima struggled to settle in since moving to her school age 14. She's made a few good friends but was bullied by one of her classmates. She started complaining of stomach aches or headaches on school days and started missing days. Mum dropped her at the gate but after a few weeks discovered that she'd regularly absconded. Jemima has become withdrawn, socially anxious 
stop spending time with her friends or doing hobbies, and Mum has recently discovered that she's been self-harming. Her attendance rate has continued to drop to 50% over the last term, and parents have been issued fines. A previous referral to CAMS last year was unsuccessful, and conversations with school to negotiate reduced length school days has left Mum in tears, coming to you today feeling helpless. How would you approach this case? This is also a very typical case that we see in CAMS. So this again is school distress. It's a manifestation of anxiety, difficulties in terms of the school experience that is now manifesting as anxiety, self-harm, and impacting on her attendance rate. The way I would approach this is, given the research that I referenced earlier, that there's a very high chance this young person has some neurodiversity traits, if not a neurodiversity diagnosis. And I'd be wanting to know a lot about what has been done before. She may well have had previous assessments. What was primary school like? What was that transition to secondary school like? She's transitioned a third time at least at the age of 14. What are the things that have made her vulnerable to that? Clearly, there's some work to be done with school. And in primary care, it can be hard to know quite in a small time you've got where do you start with something like this. I think the first thing is to offer hope and resilience to say, listen, there are things that can shift. There are things that we can do to help. We can source information and help for you. This young person is now out of school 50% of the time. They're not accessing the curriculum. Therefore, they are eligible for at least consideration of an EHCP an education healthcare plan. And EHCPs are a way of documenting and formalising support from the local authority to enable young people to access the curriculum. And EHCPs can last until a young person is 25. So it's not too late to ask for an EHCP, even if it'll take a long time for that process to happen. Helping school understand that this is not necessarily an unmotivated parent or an unmotivated child. This is a young person who's in distress that needs support and help to access as much of the curriculum as they can. A lot of schools really struggle with reduced timetables. They worry that the young person's falling behind. They worry if they offer it to some people, they'll have to offer it to everyone. In fact, most young people want to be in school full time. They don't like being on reduced timetables. And it is a good way to minimise the impact of being out of school. So being at school 0% of the time is clearly far worse for your educational development than being out of school 50% of the time. Helping change the discussion with schools around that and helping them aim for as much attendance as possible rather than 100% attendance can sometimes shift the level of support. I'd be wanting to know a bit more about fallout from the bullying, anxiety, difficulties in school, and that's the anxiety, self-harm, low mood. How that has developed and where that is at the moment. Tell us more about the self-harm aspect of things. What would you be delving into there? So obviously self-harm is a concern. I would be wanting to open up conversations around self-harm. Sometimes this can be extraordinarily difficult, particularly within families. A lot of young people use self-harm as a coping strategy, as a way of managing really difficult feelings, as a way of managing distress, and as a way of communicating distress in a way that they can't do verbally. Ask them how it helps them. They sometimes are quite surprised. But if they've been using it for a while, clearly there's something that's helpful about it. It serves a purpose. Helping them open up that discussion about why it is helpful for them can help them discuss what other things they might be able to do that benefit them in the same way that aren't as worrying or as risky as self-harm by cutting or ingesting substances. And helping families talk about self-harm as well. It's quite hidden in some studies by a group in Oxford run by Keith Horton that in some schools 
The rates of self-harm are 25-30%, so one in three. And of course, in primary care and in CAMS, we see a fraction of that. Thank you. And what organisations do you think should be involved in Jemima's care? There needs to be a coordination of care, really, a number of organisations involved. Obviously, school being the primary one and the special educational needs aspect needs to be addressed in terms of this young person, whether or not she has autism spectrum disorder, ADHD or another neurodevelopmental diagnosis. She's not getting her educational needs met. So therefore, she meets criteria for at least consideration of a special educational needs assessment. She needs the network around her to help contain some of the distress. And in primary care, this can be as simple as just offering her follow-up appointments mm. and saying, listen, this is important. You can tell this is hard. We will continue to offer you support as best we can whilst we organise some of the other services to get involved, and whether that's paediatrics, CAMS, educational psychology services. So to enable them to have a sense of being held and being heard and acknowledge this isn't just about them not wanting to go to school. Brilliant, thank you. And you mentioned the AHCPs. How can families apply for one of those? There are actually a number of routes to be able to apply for an EHCP. A parent or guardian can apply directly to the local authority to request an assessment for an EHCP. Ideally, schools should be the ones applying for them, but they don't have to, and that's through the school special educational needs coordinator, sometimes called a SENCO or a SENDCO. Medical professionals can't request an EHCP, so it's not for someone in primary care to request it. It really is either parent or school. There are additional resources. All local authorities have to have an independent advisory service called different things around the country, mostly called SENDIAS. S-E-N-D-I-A-S, so Special Educational Needs Information and Advisory Service. They are an independent service that can offer advice to parents about how to navigate and negotiate what is quite a complex task, really, the form filling, the understanding the nature of assessments, what EHCP plans can do to help young people and how long they last for. EHCPs can be in place up until 25, so they can go well beyond secondary school and support them into tertiary education as well. Mm, Brilliant, thank you. And who can apply for one? When should we be suggesting families go down that route? Where there's clearly severe learning needs, so diagnosed learning disability, then that's quite straightforward. They're not going to get their needs met in a mainstream, unsupported educational placement. But of course, educational healthcare plans really were set up to help any young person that was unable to access the curriculum without support. And so really it's about, are they able to access the curriculum? Jemima here is only at school 50% of the time. She's clearly not accessing the curriculum. She's clearly avoiding school. She's anxious. She's self-harming. She's struggled in her social group. These are all indicators that she should be assessed at least for a neurodevelopmental disorder particularly autism spectrum disorder. But there are many things that can be put in place before she gets an assessment or diagnosis. And EHCPs really should be needs-led and domain-led rather than diagnosis-led. What diagnosis has become, really, is a barrier or a threshold to reduce the accessibility for EHCPs. There's a huge backlog nationally. Anyone that's applying for an EHCP has to have an assessment by an educational psychologist. They are in short supply, so already a system that has become overwhelmed. And so diagnosis is then used as a threshold to reduce that demand, whereas it was never intended to be that way. 
So it's definitely not something to wait on. You should apply for one of these if you think that somebody isn't able to access education. But in the meantime, looking into resources, very much thinking needs-led and having that frame of mind. Okay, thank you. Thinking about children with anxiety, depression, self-harm, what would indicate the need for a CAMS referral? So this is a great question. And there's frustration, I think, nationally again, around the thresholds that CAMS have set up in terms of accessing their services. What I would recommend is ensuring that young people have been given access to all the local resource first. Things like the guided self-help, the online resource, and given some time at least for that to have been tried and accessed. The other thing is is to not forget the basics, nutrition, sleep and exercise, and ensure as much of helping with that being done as possible. So we know that young people, particularly in adolescence, will go to school having not eaten, it's a busy time in the mornings, people don't feel that hungry. They're compounding their own problems in terms of attention, concentration, irritability. And so anything that can improve the nutrition, particularly in the mornings, will help not compound what is already a difficult situation. Sometimes that's missed. So if you can demonstrate things like helping with sleep, helping with nutrition, helping them get exercise, using the guided self-help, some of the local resource, the online resource, increasing access for psychological therapies, IAPS for children, CYP, that those steps have been taken first been demonstrated to not produce the change that you're after, and then saying, well, now it's more complex, and you're much more likely to get a better result escalating it up to tertiary services. Okay, thank you. And quite a common conversation that I have with parents is them approaching me saying, I used an SSRI when I was younger, and it was really helpful for me. My child's a teenager, but she's not that far off being an adult. Can you prescribe one for her? How would you approach that? I'd approach it with caution. We know that SSRIs can be effective for particularly anxiety, but also low mood in the under-18s. That where there has been a first-degree family member that has responded well to particularly SSRI, there's a slightly greater chance that the young person will respond to an SSRI. But of course it comes with risks, and it comes with difficulties. And there are a small but significant group that when they first start taking SSRIs can become agitated, activated. There's a small but worrying group that a clearly increased risk of completed suicide when they first start SSRIs. So I think there needs to be consideration of SSRIs. The NICE guidelines say it has to be prescribed under specialist supervision for the under-18s. That is a bit of an arbitrary cutoff, of course, but the research and the general consensus is that it should be supervised in tertiary services, particularly because the response can be variable. And if you start prescribing an SSRI and it doesn't work, what do you do next? Where do you go? Then you're in the sort of awkward position of referring it into tertiary services saying, well, this hasn't worked. It makes that dynamic between primary care, secondary, tertiary care more complicated. People feeling uncomfortable and the young person feeling a little bit uncontained about, well, what next? We actually see young people that have been prescribed SSRIs in primary care. We see a lot of people prescribed beta blockers, propanolol in primary care, which I'd be even more cautious about. Because in fact, the potential adverse effects of propanolol are greater, particularly for young people, than the SSRIs, and obviously much more worrying in overdose. Remarkably, SSRIs are actually very, very safe in overdose, so we don't... Maybe don't advertise that Don't too adver- advertise that too much to, uh, to the young people that we see, yeah. Um, so I'd say caution, the closer they are to 18, and the more experience you have, and if you can seek some sort of telephone-type advice and around the country, they are developing telephone-based services for primary care to help them negotiate those very tricky conversations around antidepressant prescribing. 
I think it needs to come with a plan. It can't be the only component of looking after someone's mental health. Thank you. Moving on to the third case. Six-year-old Leo is brought in by his gran. She has parental responsibility for him due to his mother's alcohol and drug misuse. Gran is concerned that he's struggling at school. She often lets him miss school as he's too upset to go. When he does attend, he doesn't engage, is easily frustrated and upset, and has been sent home on several occasions. He's not keeping up with his classmates, but does seem to get on better when Gran does homework with him at home. He was previously being monitored by the health visitors for slow development of language skills, but never required a paediatric referral. Can you talk us through how a GP should assess Leo? So another really common presentation, a young person struggling in school, complex family dynamics, potentially social care involvement, possible developmental delay. My first thoughts are, here's a young person, there's already been concern about their development of language skills, there's a history of alcohol and drug misuse, possibly during pregnancy, there is attachment and family-related issues in terms of who's looking after this boy. I would really want this boy to have a formal paediatric developmental review, I think, in the first instance. I'd be worried about particular neurodevelopmental conditions, perhaps specific learning disabilities, perhaps fecal alcohol spectrum disorder, FASD. And so I'd want some of those things to be thought about before then going down perhaps a CAMS or, or mental health route. I'd like to know where school were at with this boy as well. What have they noticed? When they do one-to-one with him, does he function better? And here you'd be really thinking, well, this boy is likely to need at least an individual education plan, an IEP, and be starting to get the school thinking about in the HCP for this boy. He has multiple already risk factors for difficulties in terms of his educational process down the track. It sounds like we're going to be thinking about referring to paediatrics, depending on obviously slightly more of the history Mm. that we'd be getting out. And aside from that... In terms of how you'd advise Gran, so you're obviously talking to her about exploring an EHCP, communicating with school, asking about SENCOs. Is there anything else beyond that that you'd advise Gran or anywhere else that you'd be sending her for support? Given that Gran has parental responsibility, it may be that she has a special guardianship order, but there may well have been involvement of social care. He may well be already on the disability register with social care. So it's worth exploring what resources are available from children's services and who are the links there, who's had contact with his family before, because they also have a range of resource available. It can sometimes be quite tricky to navigate that resource, but they may be able to put things in place for this young boy and enable him to access education. If he's doing better one-to-one with Gran at home, it might be that a one-to-one either in school or to help Gran at home may also improve his outcomes as well. Fantastic. Is there anything else that you would advise the GP in this situation? Anything else that they ought to be adding to the plan? I would also just make sure that there is no physical health stuff that has been missed in this boy. What is his growth like? What are his other developmental milestones? What is his mobility like? What is his fine motor skills like? So just to ensure you're not missing anything else. And also ensure that he's had all his screeners. Mm-hmm. Young people that have complex care arrangements may not have had the pre-one-year checks and screens that you might typically expect. So make sure he's had his screens, do a full developmental assessment yourself, yeah. explore it a little bit more into the social care side of things, mm-hmm. ensure that school's been engaged, and refer on to paediatrics, depending yeah. on all of the above. Yeah, in the first instance, this is one for paediatrics rather than CAMS, but may well end up in CAMS down the track. Thank you.
Do you have any key top tips or take-home messages when it comes to school non-attendance? One of my key messages would be to instil hope and to allow families and young people to feel held and that there is hope that things can change. I think one of the difficult things is, particularly with the reduction in resource, both in schools, within the NHS and support services, social care, is that can at times feel a bit hopeless. And whilst it's important to acknowledge that there are constraints on resource, there is still resource available. And young people can come away from a consultation feeling contained, or they can come away from a consultation feeling much less contained. So if the message they receive is that there's no services, schools are hopeless, PAMS is hopeless, what they come away with is a feeling of, gosh, it's even worse than I thought it was. But actually, if that message is, listen, things are difficult, there is limited resource, we can help you access that resource as best you can. There are things that you can do, there is support in the community, and whilst you are waiting for assessments in CAMS, there are things that we can do together that's a very different message that in of itself can be quite containing for young people, reduce distress, and improve their outcomes. Fantastic. Are there any key resources that you'd like to signpost us to? So the resources that you mentioned earlier with that Newcastle publication, the Bristol.gov website, Autism Support, ADHD UK, and Bristol Syndias, I will link all of those underneath this podcast. Were there any additional resources you wanted to highlight? There is enormous resource out there. Even just using the NHS online resources around ADHD, ASD, Google search NHS ADHD, there's wonderful resource there. Great Ormond Street Hospital has a wonderful collection of resources in their ADHD and ASD subsections. And the bristol.gov.uk website references their Sendias offer. They also have a lot of links for support for parents and carers, parenting courses, and this is continually updated. Charity sites we've touched on, National Autistic Society, the Autism Education Trust, Ambitious for Autism, ADHD UK, the ADHD Foundation. There's a number of websites around self-harm and suicide, safety plans on a, through an organisation called Papyrus. And then the professional bodies, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the Royal College of GPs, the British Psychological Society, the British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy. These organisations also have links to a number of resources that families can access as well. So there is a resource out there. It can be at times hard to find. Encourage people to keep pushing, particularly around EHCPs and what the schools can provide. And if you only get a little bit of resource from each of these bits, actually you can develop quite a comprehensive package, even though for each of them it is only a tiny bit of what's on offer. Brilliant, thank you. And I would suggest to anyone out there who hasn't got a text template already set up with a variety of these resources that it's worth having a little look under this podcast to see what there is locally and nationally and writing your own practice text message just so that there is that abundance of resource at your fingertips for families when you need it. I think for me, the key take-home messages from these conversations was thinking about school and when families come and they feel like schools are being quite obstructive without a diagnosis is just reframing and shifting towards thinking about the need in terms of what's the child's behaviour like, what could we change, thinking practically and trying to shift the mindset of the school there. It's the importance as GPs of really understanding what resources and support that there is available so that we can give families that hope. And thinking about the lifestyle as well. So I think that's something I can be a culprit there for forgetting that simple basics when thinking about child and young person mental health is actually what's their sleep like, their nutrition and their exercise. 
that's always at the tip of my tongue with adults but somehow there's just so much going on with children that I often forget that so it's just don't forget the fundamentals absolutely nutrition sleep and exercise brilliant thank you so much thank you very much the contents of these podcasts are for educational purposes aimed at primary care healthcare professionals only they do not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals Information presented is the opinion of the healthcare professional interviewed based on their interpretation of best practice and guidelines at the time of the interview. It is the listener's responsibility to compare information given with up-to-date national and local guidelines. The BNSSG Training Hub, Ruth Bowen and interviewees are not liable for any clinical decisions made as a result of this podcast.